When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Even if you're way too young to have been reading Rolling Stone in the 1970s, you almost certainly know the name Ben Fong Torres. If nothing else, you know him from Almost Famous, where his old colleague Cameron Crowe wrote him into the movie, but he is, of course, a very real person. He was one of Rolling Stone's first star writers, and he really helped define what a Rolling Stone cover story meant, what a Rolling Stone profile was. He set the standard for the writing, the access, the depth of the reporting. And Rolling Stone's impact was such back then that he became way more than almost famous in his own right for his writing. In a moment, Ben's going to join me to talk about his whole career and some of his most famous stories, including interviews with Bob Dylan, Ike and Tina Turner, Ray Charles, and a whole lot more. Ben is the star of a new documentary called Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres, and that is on Netflix right now. It's a great documentary directed by Suzanne Jo Kai. Everyone from Jan Wenner to Cameron Crowe to Elton John to Quincy Jones is in it singing Ben's praises. I'd also recommend Ben's memoir, The Rice Room, Growing Up Chinese-American from Number Two Son to Rock and Roll, which covers some of the same ground as the documentary from his perspective, his journey from a child of an immigrant family to pioneering Rolling Stone writer. Ben also has a really essential compilation of his journalistic work. It's called Becoming Almost Famous, My Back Pages in Music Writing and Life, and I recommend you check that out as well. We talk about a lot of the stories in there in the interview you're about to hear. And here's my conversation with Ben Fong Torres. I think sometimes for journalists, it can be uncomfortable to have the spotlight turned on them and to have their story told when you're used to being a channel for other people's stories. Well, you're, you're right, Brian. I don't really like the spotlight on myself unless it's when I'm doing my Elvis Presley songs or, or Dylan for my entire career. The whole idea was that I was chronicling the stories of others. And so I was hesitant when Suzanne Jo Kai suggested, she says I suggested it, and if I did, I was joking, Suzanne, 11 years ago. I certainly had no idea it would take 11 fucking years to get it done. It's a multi-level, rather complicated biography, and it's difficult to categorize and it is by no means what it has been categorized as, which is a rock doc. No, it's a little bit different than that. You never were very thrilled with the almost famous portrayal of you. Hello. William Miller. This is he. William, this is Ben Fong Torres. I'm the music editor at Rolling Stone magazine. We got a couple copies of your stories from the San Diego door. Is this the same William Miller? Yes, it is. Voice of God, howling dogs, the spirit of rock and roll. This is good, solid stuff, man. Well, thanks. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Listen, I think you should be writing for us. Any ideas? And this is obviously, ultimately, has to be more accurate. And yet, when you write a profile and knowing the person you wrote the profile about is going to read it, you know they're not going to love everything. How, how did all that figure into your reaction to the finished product here? It is very difficult, to, thinking back to my writing about particularly performers, to do it to their 
utter satisfaction. There, that's impossible. So one shouldn't even try for that. You just do the best job you can in uh, reflecting that person and her or his views and uh, thoughts and what's going on in, in their careers. And looking at Like a Rolling Stone, I do feel the reverse. There are moments that I say, oh, gee, I don't recall that being the case. And there are no specific typos. I shouldn't say this, but I feel a lot of the talking heads were overly generous to the point where I sit there and say, really, Ray? So Ray Manzarek is talking about how I was one of the people who got Jim Morrison's poetry and lyrics and and a particular Jungian passage. And I know Egg Fu Young, but really, I that's not me. So thank you, Ray. He was being generous. And so I accept that. And Bob Weir was saying how if I took the Grateful Dead to task about some of their work, then they would have to think twice about it. Well, number one, I was never really a rock critic, and so I didn't have reason to be t- giving out my opinions about the Dead's music, and yet he is trying to give the filmmaker a sense of the impact of Rolling Stone and of of me. And so again, you know, that's very kind of him, but I just don't remember having that kind of influence on anybody. I, I thought... Striking to learn a bit about how your personal story intersected with your work. One thing is the incredible isolation, I guess, of of being the, the only Chinese-American kid in, I guess, Texas in, in an entire class of, of white kids and how I think you said that that kind of thing led to some of your ability to observe and to stand outside and to be able to grasp other people's stories. I had no choice but be an outsider in Amarillo, Texas. But beyond being the only Asian in a class of or school of over 400 students, I also was responsible at the restaurant. I had no responsibilities, but I had to be there so that my father knew that I was around and not running off to to uh, parties or, or whatever. It was around that time, I think, that I began to feel more... I should say that in Amarillo, at Horace Mann School, the, the students were very nice to me. They accepted me. They did, in fact, invite me to the soda shop where the jukebox and the root beer floats were. And so I did hear a lot of my top 40 music in Amarillo. But that was around the time that I probably began to feel more comfortable talking to people about themselves than about me. I think that if the subject turned to, <laughs> how are you enjoying Amarillo, for example, let's just say the someone asked that, I would have to say, well, I'm living in a bungalow behind the restaurant parking lot and with these two guys, older men who are cooks there and my father, and I don't get out much. No, it's just not very interesting. And in fact, it's kind of depressing. And so I, I think at that time, I began to feel like it's more interesting to hear about other people and their lives. Their average American lives were far more exciting to me than my own. And so that carried through when I returned to Oakland. 
and began to be, be a bit more social, partly because I had developed this multiple interest in media that I enjoyed reading and so wanted to be a, a writer of some sort. I enjoyed radio, so I wanted to be a either disc jockey or a musician, make those sounds that were coming out of those boxes. Describe to me what the Rolling Stone office in San Francisco looked like when you first walked into it. The Rolling Stone office in San Francisco on Brandon Street looked like uh, what it was, the loft of a printing plant on Brandon Street, and it was famously rent-free, and all Jan had to do was publish Rolling Stone there using their, their presses. It was Garrett Press. It was, I wouldn't say funky, because Jan and his uh, wife Jane always had good taste, and so the decor was cheap, but thought out. It was well-picked, and so it wasn't like, let's say, you might expect the Berkeley Barb to look like, or some hippie countercultural magazine. It was a bit more professional-looking than, however, it was cheap. You know, for example, when I was hired in spring of 1969, the order went out to find a desk. And the place to go was, of course, Goodwill Industries or Salvation Army. And that's how the offices were cobbled together. And when I was there, there were only maybe five or six people there. Now, you have a wonderful compilation of some of your favorite stories you wrote. It's called Not Fade Away, and I'd recommend it to to everyone. I I think the first story in that book is a Jim Morrison interview. And I think it's it's Rolling Stone's last interview with Jim Morrison, or maybe his last interview to anyone. And what's so striking for anyone who knows what became of the way sort of entertainment journalism worked going forward is... You know, you just ran into Jim Morrison. You didn't even have, you had no idea you were going to be interviewing with him, and you ended up sitting down and doing this interview. T- tell me all about that, if you don't mind. And, and also, what, what did Jim Morrison smell like? Like teen spirit. <laughs> Good answer. Teen idol spirit. That's what it was, yes. Well, that's how things could be back in the day. We're talking, of course, about the early 70s. So that's a long, many, many days. But yeah, there were people like Diane Gardner who was working with uh, Rogers and Cowan, the gigantic PR company who had branched, which had branched out to music, and they had among their clients Jefferson Airplane in San Francisco and The Doors in Los Angeles. And so Diane Gardner was this woman who was just so sociable. And many afternoons she would have what would amount to a salon at her apartment in West Hollywood. And so when I popped in to hang out. There might be a label head. There might be fellow publicists. There might be musicians. And then there are family members and friends and kids, everybody. But you would just hang out there for a couple hours and then go back to work. So that was one of those days. And as it turned out, Diane's apartment was just below Pamela Corson's place. And so they were buddies. And of course, the doors were a client of Rodney. So there you go, that's Diane Gardner's company. So anyway, one day there's a little mini salon going on and Jim Morrison comes bounding over and uh, walks in and he's looking for Pam and she had gone out. So he said, or Diane said, why don't you just hang out? What else you got to, to do, huh? You rock 
icon you. So he stepped in and just said hi to everybody, and I got introduced, and we had just done a Rolling Stone interview with him. Jerry Hopkins did a thorough, wonderful piece on him, and so there was no need for an interview. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just get a chat. I'll, I'll, I'll just say hi and see what's going on with his plans to go to Europe, I believe. I'd heard that, and I know the guys are uh, in the studio working on another album. So I pulled out my tape recorder and, and asked him for a chat. And so he was into it. He was friendly. He uh, he said he was he was kind of playful. He said, "Hey, you know, with these people here, let's let's pretend we're on a, a talk show." And he's thinking about the late night shows of that day of Dick Cavett with Johnny Carson. And so we set up a couple of chairs. He told a very risque, stupid joke, a riddle, and then we were on our way talking. And it was really more talking than Q and A, because he would turn the tables and say, "Well, what's this? Uh, what's the night?" club scene now like in san francisco here in 1970 and uh, what's yan all about and you know do you think yan could could get involved in politics because i think that the next leaders of the young generation could be a, a journalist and he would talk about technology and what was what he thought was around the bend he talked about the cyclical nature of rock and roll and how it was dying yet again already in 1970 and in a way that's why they were themselves going back Back to the Blues for the last album for Elektra. I actually I remember that part. You guys start talking about how this idea is rock dying. And from the perspective of whenever I first read that many decades later, it's like, what the hell are they even talking about? What were you? Do you remember what? Why was rock dying? And was it because it was the end of the 60s, that kind of thing? Or do you have any idea at this point? I think it was more personal. I think it was it was maybe dying for him. You know, maybe he'd had enough of, of it after just three years, given the intensity of the Doors career and their work and all the ups and downs they had already gone through, including a bust in Miami. I think he just had enough of it and was seeing audiences ebb and flow and acceptance of him ebb and flow. And so he was probably kind of getting ahead of it by saying, I'm moving on or I'm moving back to the blues or I'm moving sideways to poetry, which was my first love anyway, or I'm moving forward, going to Europe and I'm going to make more films. You know, so he had options, and he didn't really need this Lizard King identity anymore, and he probably didn't like it in the first place, even though he wrote it. And so that was probably what it was. Yeah, I too was taken aback when he started talking about the death of rock, but in a way, he was right. There's so many encounters to talk about. It feels like when you wrote your your pretty legendary profile of Ike and Tina Turner, it feels like dancing around the edges you were close to finding out that Tina was being abused. One of the things that's great about the piece is you read it and it's so congruent with that later knowledge that it's it's very useful. It wasn't like you wrote this, you know, a puff piece about how wonderful their marriage was, very far from it. So because that's always the nightmare, right? You write something like that and later you find out the truth. It must have been fascinating for you and dark to realize the truth a little later. It was not a surprise when Kurt Loder did his work with her for I, Tina, it was a little sad, very sad actually, because I did have a sense of what was going on. Annie Leibovitz, who had more access to Ike than I ever did, felt something going on and gave me some hints 
about life behind the curtains. I think that had I been able to speak with uh, Ike Turner, which he did not make possible, I probably would have confronted him. I don't know if I'm that brave, really, but I think I would have because by that time I had done enough research and gotten enough anecdotes and felt something from Tina from our fairly lengthy visit that I would have been able to say, okay, I've seen this fanzine where you know, you're berating Tina and forcing her to get on stage even though she's not feeling well. Um, is this accurate? And if so, how can you treat your, your wife and the star of your review that way? You know, that's a natural question. I'm not saying you're beating on her. I'm just saying there, are, there seem to be these situations that uh, raise questions, and I'd like to ask them. And that's probably what I would have done. Short of that, I could not then make those accusations myself. It had to be through implication and insinuation and description. And so even the fact that Ike had taken charge of quote-unquote decor around the house led me to open the, the piece with a pretty specific detailed description of those things that he had put into the living room and just outside. And <laughs> I must say that it was incredible when I saw the HBO on Rolling Stone, and it almost began with Jeff Daniels reading that lead I wrote, mm. what was that, 50 years ago? And they somehow researched and found <laughs> film footage of the room at that time, and they panned it, and it, 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 you know, and Jeff reads my article, and it's everything that I wrote is there. The bass-shaped guitar, the astrological clock, the portrait of JFK, Martin Luther King, all that stuff, so vivid, and it comes off that way, and I'm thinking, Jesus, I wrote this thing on deadline four decades or five decades ago, and just slammed it out. And you know this, Brian. You don't have time to sit back and say, okay, you know, how do I phrase this? Do, what do I start with? And what's the scene going to lead to? You're just at your royal typewriter and just meeting that deadline because Bob Kingsbury or John Goodchild is around the corner in the art department waiting. And so you just do that. And then you rush it into the production department or to an editor first, and then you turn back to your royal and start writing random notes. And that was pretty much the routine. And I had no idea back then that many years from now it would still be be of value to anybody. And yet here we are. And it does does tell a story of a darker side of uh, pop culture. And so I'm. I'm glad it is out there. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more. 
and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Then I would move to, I'll always remember this quote that you got. It's not from an artist, but it's from a publicist and just delightful piece about the absolutely terrible George Harrison tour that he did in the 70s. Right at the beginning of the piece, you quote the publicist of the tour saying she hated the concert. It's as much an interesting moment in the annals of publicity as it is uh, for journalism, I guess. It's an interesting approach as a publicist. I wasn't thinking. I don't know. Well, okay. Again, it's a flashback to a different time and a different situation. Not just the time and situation, but the fact that it's Rolling Stone. By that time, the magazine had a certain weight to it. And so we were taken in a different way than many other publications and certainly more the general media uh, would be. And they sort of knew that Rolling Stone was going to be pretty brutally honest if uh, a story came to that precipice. And so to me, it was nothing. I'm just looking for the best quotes I have in my notebook or, or recorder. And if it helps to summarize the feeling of a situation, then go with it. The fact that it's a publicist meant almost nothing to me. Uh, I'm not thinking about her or George or Latour. I'm thinking about the story. What summarizes the feelings that are going to course through and be a a strong sub-theme of the story? George Harrison is the theme. His tour is the theme, but there is this undercurrent of this dissatisfaction and dismay over how the tour has launched and appears to be going. And so I had to be candid about all of those concerns, especially because so much of it was coming from his own inner circle. And so even a label publicist whose job it is to be positive and (laughs) promotional and supportive and all of that couldn't help but give her honest response to the show that she and 22,000 other people had just witnessed. Unless you were a stone George Harrison slash Beatles fan, you had to admit this was not the show I paid my seven fifty for or whatever the ticket price was back then. And so as a reporter, I have to do that. And so I went after people like Bill Graham, who was promoting the tour, of course, and fans and other musicians and tried to get a well-rounded picture. And, of course, I had to talk with George and face him with this situation. And (laughs) it was great. He was proud of what he had managed to do up to that point. He was 
happy with the show. He was not swayed by any criticism. He just felt like, you know, I'm, I didn't say it's a Beatles show. If they want a Beatles show, they can go see Wings, you know. And I, I don't pray to anybody but my own, my own Lord, you know. And so I don't, I can change words if I want to. Like in, in one Beatles song, he said something in the way he moves and starts talking about his God, his deity, instead of being faithful to a Beatles song written by himself or someone else, John or, or Paul. And so he was, yeah, he was adamant. He did not give an inch. And so that was great that he spoke for himself and spoke well. I still didn't agree with him. And I'm sure that's how I left the story. I forget. But uh, yeah, that's an example of just having to, to play it as it lays. <laughs> In 1974, another tour, Bob Dylan's tour with the band, and you went out with far from a guarantee that Bob Dylan would talk. You were told that, hey, maybe if you ran into him, he would talk, which meant that you had to do everything you could to engineer running into Bob Dylan, which, you know, many years later would be co completely impossible. But back then was doable, at least if you were Ben Fonctoras. No, it wasn't because it was me. No, no, I was just, yeah, I was, I was on the scene. I had done a pre-visit with the band. And that really helped a lot to, to, to get in with Robbie Robertson and, and the others. When that time came where David Felton, who did a masterful job, by the way, editing my George Harrison piece, had written a story basically bitching about ticket prices, the concert ticket prices, and, and noted the Bob Dylan concert tour prices as an example. Which were like $8.50, which back then was considered somehow outrageous. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was, man. It was. So that's a ripoff, man. So they were not happy with the Rolling Stone, and therefore they were not going to cooperate with me beyond sending me the itinerary and letting me know where they were staying in case I wanted to, to book a hotel nearby for myself. Uh, or the same hotel. Anyway, so I just did what I could to stay close to the contingent while being on the outside. And then at one point, I tapped Robbie and said, hey, what's happening? I'd like to be able to, to, to meet Bob and uh, set up something, if possible. And he said, oh, well, tonight, you know, after the show, uh, we're going to be on the 12th floor. And uh, Bob's not feeling great, but, uh, you know, come on in and, and we'll see what happens. So that's all it was. Then you're just wandering the hotel corridors looking for this suite. And uh, in that room are a bunch of people, musicians mostly. And uh, there's Bob sitting there in a small sofa chair. And there was one empty next to him. So I just slid on in and said, I <laughs> introduced myself. Said, oh, you have the flu or something? And sat six feet away, of course, immediately put on a mask. And then, you know, just, just, just a little small talk, and that was enough. Just probably said how much his, the, the show had moved me and that I was looking forward to, to uh, seeing him at some point for a, an interview about the tour and about his latest album, Planet Waves. So he said, yeah, all right, uh, next town. And so that's uh, how it was set up. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. And he grew to, you know, he spoke to you a few times after that. He seemed to grow as as fond as Bob Dylan could grow could grow of a reporter. It seemed like he he respected at least respected or enjoyed your company. Well, what happened was that at the interview, finally, I was all set up to to, to talk with him and and record it. So I had my cassette recorder out, and he said, "Now recorder." 
So he had been going through the A.J. Weberman phase of, and, and, and probably, probably groupies and photographers and uh, everybody else. So he was not going to have it recorded. So I had to ditch that and put, uh, put, get my notebook together, try to write notes because he talks you know, sometimes pretty in elliptical fashion and jotted down all I could and tried to capture the ambiance of the hotel room and and then had to flee and write it up to, to meet the deadline. Then the story ran, and a few months later, I was covering Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young in Minneapolis. And so I was at the Coliseum there, the arena. And Bob Dylan spotted me and came up. This is in the vast yeah. court. And he said, hey, let's talk. So he <laughs> got me into a side room that he commandeered. And uh, said, "Hey, I saw that book. John, John Wenner is not nothing of not an entrepreneur. He managed to put the lash together a collection of our coverage of that tour. I gave it the title, Knocking on Dylan's Door, and it was put out paperback. And it included what Jan requested of me, which was a Q and A." of that session with Dylan. So I had to go to my reporter's notebook and all the scribblings that I could find and read, I pulled out and then put them in some kind of an order, fleshed out a couple of things I did remember that he said that I didn't write down and turned it into Jan. And so he was saying, say, did you have that recorder on? (laughs) I said, no, Bob, you saw me click it off and put it away. He said, all right. And so that meant to me that he thought it was accurate. He was kind of surprised that it showed up as a Q&A Playboy interview type of a chapter in the book. So then a few months after that, maybe a couple of years, he was there at uh, the Winterland in San Francisco as part of the band's last waltz. And so after the show, I believe, my wife Diane and I were backstage, and there he was sitting by himself. So I went up to him and, and said hello. And he was cordial. And so, yes, I think he was ultimately, overall, pretty pleased with uh, my work with him. You had an incredible interview with Ray Charles. And at the time, you know, it's easy to forget, Ray Charles was already an older guy at that point. He was a guy who had been making records in the 50s. So he was an older person who was not part of the counterculture, who also wasn't part of white rock and roll. And you did just one of the most definitive Ray Charles interviews, and you got him to talk about something that he never talked about, which was his heroin addiction. In fact, I think Playboy had, or somebody had just warned, or maybe a jazz magazine had warned, never ask Ray Charles about his heroin addiction because bad things uh, could happen. But you got to that point, and he, he gave a pretty harrowing account to you. Yes, he did. I would say that Rolling Stone did, in fact, cover a wide range of music from the, the beginning, jazz and country and folk R&B for sure, especially in the hands of John Landau. And uh, yeah, he really appreciated the greats. And yeah, so we were all over the place. But it was one of those meetings where we're looking for ideas. And I had noticed that Ray Charles was in town for a jazz festival or a blues festival. And I had seen him on stage with Aretha and realized, my God, you know, it seems like time and trends are passing him by. He is respected, but he's not on the charts. But a guy who sounds like him, Joe Cocker, is riding high. And, you know, what's this all about? So I think that's what was running through my head when I raised my hand and said, Ray Charles. And I said something along the lines that without 
people like Ray and, and a few others, we wouldn't be here doing what we're doing. Come on, Ray Charles. So, and Jan said, yeah, sure, go. And that's it. So when I met him, he had the same feeling I did. <laughs> so he was angry and he was proud and he had terrible memories and flashbacks to his days as a kid, a black kid in America. And so he gave of himself and had me with him in, I think, maybe three different towns. I know we wound up in Los Angeles at his studio where he was producing his latest album. But I think I was with him in Washington, D.C., where he was receiving an honor of some sort, possibly from Richard Nixon. It's all in the story, I suppose. And what, maybe one other town. But So the interview was just kind of pieced together from three different visits. And, oh man, I had a pile of quotes that I had typed out. And it was really a mess, putting it all together. And on a fierce deadline, over a Thanksgiving weekend... When I was in New York, one of Rolling Stone's advertising people, Josh Feigenbaum, who went on to become a radio industry giant with MJI. And so he lent me his place while he was with his family. And I sat there and there was no scissors or any office supplies. And I had all the sheaf of papers, transcripts and manuscript. And I had to just kind of hand tear this quote and then staple it or put paper clips around it and put it all together into about 7,000 words, flew it back to San Francisco, retyped it, and submitted it. And there it was. And it wound up winning the Deems Taylor Award for National Magazine Writing, something like that. Ray Charles, a winner. Yeah. It's easy for people my generation and, and younger to forget that cutting and pasting once literally meant cutting and pasting, right? That's what we had to work work with. We didn't know about anything like computers, so... We, we just did it. You've said that in your work, your racial identity didn't really come up. Partly because we're in the Bay Area. I've often ascribed my being able to get into newspaper offices at Oakland High and at San Francisco State and the radio, the campus radio station in San Francisco because of the area in which we live. At the doors were more open and more easy to, to, to open and to keep open, as long as you worked and showed your stuff and learned from the process that you were uh, allowed to be part of. So at Rolling Stone, no, there was almost never any reference to race that I ever heard. On occasion, maybe when the ping-pong team from the People's Republic was visiting, they might say, hey, do you care to go down and check it out. And since we're, we we had started a new column by Tim Cahill primarily, in which he, it was just sort of an at-large column. So anybody could actually pop in and say, yeah, I'd like to do something about this that's a little outside of uh, our usual ter- turf. And so that probably came up at that point. So I wrote a piece about the Chinese ping pong team, but it wasn't because I'm Chinese. But uh, no, that never happened. And now that the documentary has come out and... So many artists and others uh, have talked about how I appeared to them. It strikes me that probably more than a few times, a musician, especially uh, those of color, in some way connected to me as a kind Mm. of a fellow outsider. And so I show up 
to see Carlos Santana, for example, and he's oh wow, <laughs> okay, Asian guy, and the same is probably true with Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and any number of people, and especially because I really, as reflected in the film by by chance, am enamored with black music, and so you will see me in the film or hear me talking with uh, Ray Charles and Marvin Gaye and Tina Turner and oh, oh Stevie Wonder and we had Al Green in our Sorry. office because Jan and I were having our January 7th birthday party and so yeah I I happened to love the music as a kid and so it was easy uh, for me to connect with them when I met them for an interview or to go on the road with them. And I think they saw me as a sort of a fellow kind of marginalized person doing something extraordinary, just as they were, you know. So I think that there was that connection. One thing, I think the biggest thing I learned that I didn't know was the real reason that you didn't go to New York with Rolling Stone, that it was at least partly had to do with with the death of your brother and the need to take care, help take care of your family. I was moved by that because I really, I always kind of wondered why you didn't go, and I realized that wasn't the only reason. But it seems like that was a, a big factor. I just didn't go, and that's how it was. For I think most of the staff, they knew the reason I gave. I'm sure it came up at an editorial meeting talking about the move to New York because Diane and I actually tried uh, to make it work, and so we were on a trip to New York and went to Brooklyn and ran into an, an open house situation. And so we actually went there and, and checked out the neighborhood and the pricing and all of that. But we had just purchased a, a home in San Francisco. And yes, there was the 1972 killing of my brother Barry, older brother Barry, which then left me as the number one son. And in our culture, that's an important spot. And with my parents not writing or speaking English well, it uh, fell to us to help them with all kinds of different matters having to do with business, the restaurants, property, taxes, just basic bill paying, just so many things for them. And so I I was the one, as Elvis would say, I was the one who paid all the bills. And and there were two sisters and a younger brother, but number one son, wow, that's, that's you. I did not shirk that role. And I felt like I could maintain a connection to Rolling Stone and be of use as the West Coast bureau chief or a correspondent or whatever and help cover L.A., to San Francisco and beyond, and that that would be okay. And for a couple of years after the move in 1977, it was okay, but it became dissatisfying after a while because I no longer was in the room where it happened. That is, that the editorial meetings were a a speaker box for me in uh, my office in San Francisco. And so it, I was an outpost, and I felt that way, and I had begun to get some inquiries from other publications about maybe writing for them or freelancing for them or just doing some stuff. And so I just thought maybe it's time for me to find out if I'm for real because Rolling Stone was so unreal. It was such a phenomenon, and it was such an oasis of freedom and liberty and growth. 
You, you wrote about the magazine's approach to punk and disco. How are you feeling about the changes in music as the 70s kind of moved into the 80s? I must say that I was not as open-minded about punk and disco as I might have been. I think we were slow to respond to both phenomenons. I think uh, part of it was that, like, <laughs> like certain free-form progressive FM stations of the day, once you got commercial, then you know you were uh, no longer of interest to us. And disco came on commercial all the way. Punk became commercial. It was very raw and and rebellious and very rock and roll in the beginning, but then slid into the the new wave thing. I also was skeptical of almost anything that got tremendous media hype. By the time Bruce Springsteen came to be, that was happening. Time and Newsweek and other magazines were now paying attention to rock culture. And so they both put him on the cover, I believe, maybe the same week, possibly. That's correct. And so I looked at that, oh man, we're going to hold off for a while. (laughs) You know, the record critics can do what they want with him and praise him through the heavens and to E Street. But in terms of us doing a similar cover story, uh, I didn't suggest it. You know, it, it came to be, of course, he was not to be denied. But I wasn't uh, an early champion. Although once I saw him perform, I became a fan. You know, it's just a knockout. But yeah, punk was not my thing. And uh, so we were, I believe, a little slow. And I'm glad Charles M. Young came along and thoroughly canvassed it. The truth is, Rolling Stone from the beginning was not just covering rock and roll. It was really a publication that was not just a rock and roll publication. It was much broader in, in its musical approach. Before I entered the offices uh, to submit a story, my first freelance piece probably, I had read Rolling Stone for probably about eight issues. And my roommates and I were all involved in some way in music or media in our very young age, 22 maybe. And so we knew or I knew what Rolling Stone was about, having read the cover stories. And you know that, that very first issue, the cover story, the front page story, was about a movie. It was a John Lennon film, but still. And yeah, and then we were reading about Johnny Cash and Aretha Franklin and Blues, B.B. King and Muddy Waters and Miles Davis. And you know they all came along fairly early in the history of the magazine. So yes, and of course, covering politics and Probably People's Park, and 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 doing an investigative reporting with Michael Leiden and his breakdown of what happened financially at the Monterey Pop Festival. So yeah, it was all right away more than a rock journal of any sheet. And so yeah, and I I wound up uh, helping cover things like FCC versus obscene lyrics on the radio and other stuff like that. But I came from college papers. Uh, paper where we covered a wide range of things beyond college life. You know, it's all the, all of the world that swirled around us: the protesters, the rallies, the town halls on Vietnam, and as well as fun stuff like blues festivals and visiting rock bands of the day, or seeing Bill Graham or Chet Helms come around and staple up their their posters of the week on various poles and running over and tearing them down right away to, to add to your collection. Fun times. Again, check out the new documentary, Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres on Netflix now. And thanks so much to Ben for joining us. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. 
We are a podcast, of course. We're also on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Try to leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. That's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.